All right. Uh, well, so good to see everyone here, see old and new faces. It's, it's good to be back here. I um, want, want to make two more uh, quick announcements. Uh, first, if you signed up for our Origins uh, course through the Old Testament, um, I have your books. And so if you want to meet me outside right after service, um, underneath the awning, I'll get you, I'll get you those books. And uh, that course, as you know, starts tomorrow. Excited about that. And I also want to just take a moment to shout out all of our staff and volunteers. They were here uh, all day yesterday setting up this space, um, getting it ready for worship. So can we give them a big round of applause? All right. Well, um, as always, uh, I have the privilege of bringing us God's word. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me uh, to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Uh, if you can choose your translation, we're going to be looking at the ESV, the English Standard Version. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. This is the reading of God's Word. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Amen. Uh, we're starting a new series at our church today through the Gospel of Mark. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Mark is the earliest gospel. Uh, when people come up to me and they're new believers or curious about the faith and they say, where do I start in the Bible? I usually point them to the Gospel of Mark. It's really short, concise, um, but is a perfect snapshot of Jesus' life and ministry. And, um, you know, to give, you, give us a little bit of an overview of the entire book, um, you know, uh, in literature and film, if you're familiar with it, there's a technique called dramatic irony. And dramatic irony is when um, the audience knows what's going on, but the characters in the story have no idea what's going on. So, you know, this is used in horror films a lot. Um, you know, you have a serial killer at the beginning of the movie, you watch the serial killer go into the shower, and then the first scene opens with, like, a woman coming home from work and she's about to go into the restroom and we as the audience are like don't go in there there's somebody in there and that's where the tension is um, I don't know why I use that example to introduce the book of Mark but um, that is basically the context of the book of Mark um, the way that the, the the way that the story opens is a story the story opens with the line the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God so right off the bat the author tells us this is who Jesus is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But then nobody else in the book of Mark, none of the characters know who he is, and that's where the tension lies. And, you know, the, uh, there's this moment in Mark 8, which is exactly halfway through the book when the tension is, is increasing and rising, and all of a sudden everything builds up to this climactic moment when Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it's like this moment, if you're reading through the book of Mark as the reader, it's almost like Jesus turns to the camera and looks directly at you and says, who do you say that I am? And, and it's like this double irony that happens and what makes Mark such an amazing piece of literature is that even though we as the reader technically are in on the secret, 
even though we know who Jesus is, as we read through the book of Mark, we start to have to examine ourselves and we start to have to ask ourselves the question, wait a second, do we know who the real Jesus is? You know, we've, we've all had a certain image of Jesus that's been constructed for us. Uh, for some of us, uh, this version of Jesus was handed down to us by our parents, by our communities of faith, by our families of origin. Uh, for me, the version of Jesus that was handed, handed down to me was a Jesus who only showed up at 5 a.m. in the morning and on the last night of retreats. It was a Jesus who always voted Republican, a Jesus who hated secular music. And this is the Jesus that was constructed in my mind. And I think we all, if I, if I were to pull every single person in this room and ask you, who is Jesus to you, you would give me a different answer. Um, and what we don't often realize is how we view Jesus, what we believe the real Jesus to be, often dictates the way we relate to him the way we relate to others, and the way we move through the world that we live in. And so that's the big question that's driving this series. Um, we're trying something new in our church. If you're in a community group um, or if you're in our college ministry, you know, typically when we do sermon discussion at our church, you hear the sermon preached and then you discuss it during the week. Um, and this season, we're actually flipping that. So you actually have, have time with your community groups to wrestle with the text and then you come on Sunday and hear it preached. And that puts a lot of pressure on me, obviously, but I think one of the reasons we're doing this is we realize so much of our image of Jesus has been inherited, has been borrowed or leased uh, by our pastors, by our leaders, by our parents, and we haven't really spent the time, we haven't really gotten a chance to sit with texts and ask ourselves, who do we really believe Jesus is? You know, we haven't had time to sit with our doubts and our questions and our preconceived notions about Jesus. Um, we've usually relied on our leaders and mentors to do that for us, and that's why we want to allow you to sit with it first, and then you get to hear an interpretation uh, of that same text when you come on Sundays. And so uh, the text we're looking at today that many of you have already sat with this past week is from Mark 1, and is Jesus' calling of the first disciples, very familiar text. Um, for a little bit of context, uh, earlier in Mark 1, we have the baptism of Jesus where the Holy Spirit descends and he says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then immediately after that, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness for a time of testing and preparation. And then Jesus emerges from the wilderness in verses 14 and 15 right before this and he makes this epic announcement. He says, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. When you talk about epic announcements that have changed the course of history, this is it. This is the one. Um, many of you here know that uh, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, it's crazy to me that it's already been 20 years. I realize that we have college students uh, in our church who weren't even born when 9-11 happened. Um, and that, that just blows my mind, and um, this will age me, obviously, but I still remember. Um, I, it was my first day of college, and uh, I was standing outside my first class, and um, we were about to go in, and there was like a note that was like hastily taped onto the door, and it just said, class canceled, World Trade Center hit. That was it. And um, uh, I was like, what is going on? Um, that's when, that's back in the day when um, some only people over the age of 30 will know this, but like, you know, that's when they had TVs that rolled around on carts. 
um, in the hallways. Uh, that was, you know, that was the thing. And there was a TV on a on a cart in the hallway of my classroom, and I looked at it. There's a reporter reporting on the first plane hitting the Twin Towers, and in real time, behind her, I see the second plane um, hit the World Trade Center. And, and I feel like if you're over the age of 28, everybody knows exactly where they were, what they were doing when it was announced that America was under attack. It's just one of those things. You know, think about the, the big announcements that you've experienced in your own life. Honey, we're pregnant. It just shakes you. Or conversely, honey, we just lost the baby. Or sir, I, I'm so sorry, I'm afraid it's cancer and it's terminal. These announcements have a way of disrupting our reality. You know, you almost can't really go on with life as normal. Um, I was reading an article this past week on NBC, and it was, the article was entitled The Whisper Heard Around the World. And it was written actually by the guy who um, was the head of security or something um, during the George Bush presidency. And he talks about the day he had to whisper in George W. Bush's ear that America was, was under attack. And, and if you know anything about that day, uh, that day was supposed to be just an ordinary, pretty light day for the president. Um, he was speaking to a, a group of second graders. He was supposed to read to them, um, you, know, you know, nothing too big, something he liked to do. And so he was in his second grade classroom, and, and this head of security uh, hears the news. Um, and he, he's like, okay, how am I going to tell the president this right now in this moment? And so he talks about walking over through the classroom to the president, and he's trying to rehearse the words in his mind because he knows these words are going to change the course of history. They're going to have historic implications and so he whispers in his ear and he's talking about this moment and he says it's like the entire world freezes because the president knows he knows everyone in the room knows that nothing's ever going to be the same that america is forever going to be changed and i think those of us who've lived through 9-11 and those of us who've experienced the aftermath of 9-11 can attest to that fact nothing was ever the same and even reading about it yesterday, you realize how disruptive this announcement was. And that's what we're seeing in the story. I think a lot of times we have a tendency to gloss over these things in the gospel. But when Jesus says, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, you have to understand that for the Jewish people, they were waiting for this announcement for over 400 years. They felt like God had been silent they watched generations come and go. They had promised their kids, no, I promise you, there's this king that's coming that's going to right every wrong. He's going to fix everything that's broken, all the chaos that you see around you, all these kingdoms and factions that are warring against one another. There is a kingdom and there is a king coming who's going to fix it. 400 years go by, God was silent, and all of a sudden Jesus emerges from the wilderness and he says, the kingdom is at hand. Okay, so that's kind of where we find ourselves right before verse 16. And if you're an early reader, um, you know, this is the moment, you know, in like uh, Endgame when all the Avengers kind of come together and Jesus is mobilizing this movement now. And you would assume that if you're mobilizing a movement in a hyper-religious society like the one they lived in, you would assume they probably, Jesus is probably heading to Jerusalem. 
He's probably heading to the synagogue or the temple to recruit the best and the brightest, right? If you are a CEO and you are starting your own company, um, you know, most likely you're going to go to where the best and the brightest are. You're going to go to the Ivy Leagues. You're going to recruit people from certain schools uh, with certain majors. And yet here Jesus, as always, does the thing that we don't expect him to do. Jesus is always subverting what you, do, what you want him to be, what you expect him to be. And he shows up strolling on a beach. And here he is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he recruits four ordinary fishermen. Ordinary fishermen just doing their job and he wants, to, he wants them to accompany him on his mission. And, and why this is especially revolutionary is back then, teachers never called their students. Students always called their teachers. So, you know, uh, the way that you would start to study under a rabbi, okay, it was a very, you know, desired kind of position. It was a desired thing for you to do. You had to go through this long, arduous process of proving yourself to this rabbi. You know, you had to show them uh, that you were deemed worthy, right? You, had, you were worthy of their teaching. You were deemed worthy to follow them around. You kind of had to, like, pay attention to, to everything. You had to memorize the Torah. And only a select group of people were able to study under these rabbis. And right off the bat, Jesus is doing something that nobody would expect him to do. Jesus breaks into their reality. He enters their world, and he initiates the call. And he says, come follow me, right? Uh, right off the bat, you see that this is a Jesus where he is always coming to us before we come to him. It's this reminder that we can never come to Jesus without Jesus first initiating that action toward us. And Jesus doesn't call them on the basis of their merit or their status or even their desire. They're not looking for Jesus. They're just living their lives. They're doing what every fisherman does. They're just casting and mending their nets. Casting and mending. It's what they've been doing every day of their lives. The same sea, the same boat, the same net. They're just casting and mending, casting and mending. And you don't have to be a first century fisherman to know what that feels like. Casting and mending, paying the bills, feeding my family, Go to sleep, casting and mending, casting and mending, waiting for that big break, trying to earn a reputation, trying to seek success, casting and mending, casting and mending, casting and mending to buy a house, save up for retirement, you know, travel, casting and mending. It's like we're in this endless cycle that never stops. And if you're young, sometimes you look at that and you, you feel like, I can run on that treadmill for a long time. I think I can do this. Uh, if you get to my age and if you're near 40, that's usually when the midlife crisis happens, that's when you stop thinking about what you could do and that's when you just accept this is what I am. It's just casting and mending, casting and mending. Wake up, go to work, feed the kids, Netflix, go to sleep. Rinse and repeat, right? Uh, Best-selling author David Foster Wallace um, in one of his last interviews before his death talks about what, it, what it's like to live in America around the millennium. And he says this, and I think it's so prophetic. He says, there's something particularly sad about it, something that doesn't have very much to do with physical circumstances or the economy or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. It's more like a stomach-level sadness. I see it in myself 
and my friends in different ways, it manifests itself as a kind of lostness, a stomach-level sadness. Do you know what the most jarring and demoralizing thing is? It's to sit in the house you've worked your entire life to buy and have to ask the question, is this it? It's demoralizing. A lot of us, we can run on that treadmill for a long time. We can run in the rat race a long time, but at some point we're all gonna be exhausted and all of us are gonna find ourselves asking that question, is this all there is? that stomach-level sadness. And in some sense, this interview was kind of prophetic because those of you who know his life know that a few years later, he ended up taking his own life. For all his accomplishments, for all his success, for all his profound reflections on the meaning of life, David Foster Wallace could not escape that stomach-level sadness. This resonates with me so much, and I'm sure this resonates with you. You know, we are a church that I would say demographically, generally middle to upper middle class. We live, you know, I think uh, for many of us, we live pretty comfortable lives. I don't think we woke up this morning um, and, and, and things were that difficult. But I would also venture to say that most of us in this room know very well what this stomach level sadness feels like. That deep ache in your gut that says, Is this all there is? Is this all there is? And to this, Jesus says, there is more. Follow me. Jesus breaks into these fishermen's lives and he says, come be a part of something so much bigger than yourself. You know, a lot of times we see following Jesus um, as Jesus making our lives smaller. We see following Jesus as Jesus wanting to restrict us, wanting to keep us from the things we really want to do. You know, we look at people, you know, now we're all back on Sundays, and we look at people, uh, you know, who get to wake up late on Sunday mornings, who get to sleep in, who get to go out and eat brunch, and we're like, ah, man, if I'm a Christian all my life, and they're going to get to go eat brunch with my friends on Sunday. And it's like Jesus is saying, you really talking about not being able to eat brunch on Sundays? Dream bigger, bro. I'm talking about the renewing of the world. I'm talking about the renewing of the world. And I love Jesus' wordplay here. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I don't think that's an accident. You think you're just fishermen. I want you to be fishers of men. It's this idea that God has a unique call for your life that is specific to you and your specific context wherever you find yourself this morning whatever your circumstances are whoever you find yourself entrusted to or for jesus has a specific invitation for you to follow him and join him in the redemption of the world okay now a lot of us uh, when you hear that you're probably asking well what does that look like I wish Jesus would just give me a roadmap. I wish Jesus would tell me exactly what it looks like to follow him. I wish he would tell me what to do and how to do it. But when you read this account, Mark makes it a point to say that immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. No questions about where are we going? Do I need anything? Should I bring an extra pair of shoes? Immediately. It says immediately they left their nets and followed him. And they didn't just leave their nets. Verse 20, it says they left their father Zebedee in the boat. Okay, and and I want to make a quick observation there. Um, A lot of times when I talk to Christians, 
uh, I realize that we so many times equate being quick Christian with sinning less right uh, to follow Jesus is to let go of some of the bad habits in your life you know oh now that I follow Jesus I don't yell as much um, I'm a nicer person uh, I don't drink as much and and a lot of times when you hear testimonies that's kind of how we frame them right after I met Jesus you know um, I stopped sleeping around I gave up this drug addiction and let me just tell you uh, you don't need Jesus to give up a drug addiction there are a lot of ways there are a lot of programs out there that will help you kick a drug addiction okay you want to stop parting I'll give you the answer right now just have kids okay uh, you know you're too tired right like I mean 10 p.m. rolls around that's when people go out you're like I just want to go to sleep right uh, you know much easier than following Jesus okay just just get married have kids but what Jesus is showing us here is that he says following me isn't just about letting go of the bad things it's about letting go of the good things too it's about letting go of everything you know work is a good thing created by God for us it's it's a gift but if you worship work it will eat you alive you will use people to get ahead and you will neglect all the important relationships in your life family is a great thing but if you worship your family you will destroy your marriage you will destroy your kids when they can't live up to the picture-perfect standard you've created in your mind friendship is a great thing it's a gift from God if you worship friendship and you put expectations on that friend that you know he or she will never be able to meet in the end you will end up destroying that friendship and you will end up pushing that friend further and further and further away and Jesus says to follow me is to surrender every aspect of your life to him to let go of the good things that have become ultimate things right and this is what we see in these fishermen I mean we can't really comprehend this in our context now but back then to leave your father and to leave the family business was to leave everything okay this is why in the text everyone is introduced in relationship to their family it was a very communal familial culture right this is why you see Andrew brother of Simon James son of Zebedee John James's brother right for them letting go of their family and letting go of their nets was to leave their identity it was to leave their livelihood it was to leave their security blanket it was to leave their future and the fact that James and John had hired servants means they were probably pretty well off too you know a lot of times we have this misconception that these fishermen were poor and that they had no other choice but to follow Jesus we don't see that in the text that's actually not true they had hired servants means they probably had a lucrative fishing business and to be honest they would have been pretty comfortable without Jesus they would have been comfortable but unfulfilled that deep stomach level sadness comfort is the enemy of faith you know if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're joining us today at this point you're probably saying this is too intense if this is what being a Christian is um, thanks but no thanks I think I can figure out my identity I can figure out meaning and purpose on my own and maybe you're thinking that let me tell you a, a quick story um, when I was in middle school I went on this short-term mission trip to Mexico with my church and and we had a free day 
uh, to ourselves. And, and our entire team went on this exploration through this uh, super deserty area, okay? And uh, we were split up into two groups, and my tour guide was this young tour guide from Mexico, uh, didn't speak any English, and, uh, you know, he decided to take us on, a, take our group on a little detour, okay? And so he takes us into, like, this area that it feels like we shouldn't have been anywhere near there. And um, we're on this dusty road. It's starting to get late. The sun's gone down. And it's like, we're like, okay, we've been walking for a while. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of our eyes, we see this huge rattlesnake just slither right next to us. And um, I remember our small group leader, um, she had this phobia of snakes. And she starts freaking out. She literally starts having an anxiety attack. She's like, nope, we're going home. Take me out of here. And she's trying to communicate this to our tour guide. She's like, we're stopping. I'm going. Can we? And, and he can't speak English. So um, he's just, you know, he keeps smiling. And he's like, it's OK. It's OK. You know, and, and she's like, you know, having, she's hysterical. Okay, she's crying, and, and she's like, what do we do? I don't know what we're doing. And I still, I never forget this. Uh, there was this kid, James, in our youth group, super, like, small, wiry kid with glasses. And in the midst of all this, because we're stopped in the middle of the road, because she's like, I, I can't go any further. In the midst of all this, he looks straight at her, and he's like, but what's the alternative? <laughs> and he's like, we either follow him, or we stay here with the snakes right? And we followed him, you know, and, and that, was, that was all it took. You know, uh, when, when, when people read this passage, uh, I think, you know, because it says they immediately left their nets, I think we think the disciples were like, oh, yay, like they happily skipped off with Jesus. Um, I doubt that's what happened. Uh, I'm pretty sure they were terrified. I'm pretty sure they were doubting everything. I'm pretty sure they had a lot of questions. But I'm also sure that maybe they were asking, but what's the alternative? Here we are, we've been casting and mending, casting and mending the same thing over and over again. And I wonder if they were asking, but what's the alternative? The only thing crazier than giving up your life to follow someone you don't know is giving up your life to follow something you know will destroy you. Let me say that again. The only thing crazier than giving up your life to follow someone you don't know is giving up your life to follow something you know will destroy you. How many examples do we need of people who seem to have everything and yet are shells of themselves? How many examples do we need of people who are smiling on the outside but completely empty on the inside, living a life without purpose and meaning and fulfillment? How many Netflix documentaries need to be made about celebrities who seem to have it all together but lived very miserable lives? And we think, we think that we're the exception. No, we're not. How many of those examples do we need to see to see that all of this stuff that culture offers us is an illusion? And it would be delusional for us to think that we're any different. Nobody in the history of the world has been able to find fulfillment in these things, and yet we still want to try. Today, a lot of us come here, and let me just say, whether we want to admit it or not, we're all we already following something. 
and we're already giving our entire lives to serve that something or someone, be it power, be it money, security, comfort, or family, we're all doing it. And, and at some point, it will kill you, and it will have no problem watching you die. Even something like family, those of you who sacrifice your entire life on the altar of your family, I guarantee you, as you get older, there will come a point when you will ask, is this all there is? Because your family will never stop you from dying at that altar. You want to give your entire life and sacrifice it on the altar of money or power? It won't stop until it has your life. It won't stop until it watches you die. When I first came into ministry, something uh, a fellow pastor said to me was, Jason, you better protect your marriage and you better protect your kids because you know what? Your church will never not let you die on their behalf. They will always let you sacrifice your life for them, so you better take care of your own. You know what makes following Jesus different? Jesus is the only one who would rather die than let you die. He's the only one. He is the only God who would, let, who would rather die than let you die, and this is exactly what he does. You know, when people read this story, they talk a lot about the faith of these four men. Man, I can't believe these fishermen. How do they just immediately leave their nets and follow Jesus? And nobody talks about how crazy it is that Jesus calls people to follow him knowing they're not going to be able to. For all the multitudes that followed Jesus throughout the course of his life and ministry, the multitudes who followed him as he healed the sick and he fed the 5,000 and casted out demons, do you know who was there when he died? None of them. Jesus died alone. They followed him when it was convenient and they left, they abandoned him when it wasn't. Why would Jesus call them? And it makes you wonder, maybe it was never about their faithfulness to begin with, maybe it was always about his. Maybe it was never about their ability to follow him, maybe it was about Jesus. Because Jesus surrendered his life for you and me, because Jesus submitted perfectly to the will of the Father, when God looks at you today, he doesn't see who you are today, he sees who you could become. This is why, you know, I, I think often we're very frustrated, right? Because we follow Jesus and we want the change to happen now. We want to become more generous, loving people now. We want things in our lives to change now. But if you notice in the story, the decision is immediate, but the process is gradual. This is why Jesus says, come follow me. He doesn't say, I will make you fishers of men today. I will change your life today. No, he says, come follow me and I will make you become fishers of men the decision is immediate the process is gradual you belong first and then i will make you become follow me and i will make you become the parent you've always wanted to be follow me and i will make you become the husband or wife or child you've always wanted to be follow me and i will make you become a person whose life is marked by radical generosity love and compassion it's going to take time it's going to be painful it's not always going to make sense but follow me and i will make you become like me um this morning uh, let me just close with this i believe jesus is inviting every single one of you 
to follow him in some way, shape, or form. I believe he wants to disrupt our comfortable lives in this moment. You think this is just an ordinary Sunday. This is the way Jesus works. He breaks into our ordinary realities and our ordinary existence, and he calls us to follow him. It doesn't mean that after this service, you're going to go sell all your possessions and you're going to give all your money away. No, this is not what happened with the disciples. For the disciples, it was a lifetime of responding to Jesus' invitations to follow him. It was a lifetime of learning what it means to be his disciple. It was a lifetime of failing, trying again, trusting, and responding. You know, um, you have to wonder, like, what was going through Peter's mind um, when he denied Jesus three times, um, you know, on the eve of his death. If I'm Peter, I'm probably thinking about this moment on the boat. And I'm like, you said, you said you wanted us to become fishers of men. It feels like I got worse. And here I am, I'm, I'm denying even knowing you. What's going on? But Peter didn't realize that what Jesus saw on the boat and what Jesus saw in that moment was not who he was that day. What Jesus saw was who he could become. And so it makes sense that in the end, Jesus ends up building his church on Peter. And Jesus, it, it, ironically, it's after Jesus' death that Peter finally becomes the fisher of man, Jesus called him to be today let me ask you this what small thing what small thing does, is jesus calling you to surrender to him what small thing in your life what small relationship what small aspect of your life is jesus inviting you to let go of to come follow him whatever it is May we all remember as we leave this place that the same grace that saved us is the same grace that will make us become the people Jesus has called us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that uh, many of us come today and we can relate to the sense that all of life has become just this casting and mending, casting and mending, the same pursuits, the same things, the same struggles over and over again in an endless cycle. And I know that even though many of us can say that we live comfortable lives on the outside, though many of us can say objectively um, things are pretty good, that at the end of the day, if we were to really examine our hearts, I think many of us would say that we know what it feels like to have that deep stomach-level sadness, that deep ache that wonders, is this all there is? And I pray that this morning, Holy Spirit, would you show us that there is so much more that you are calling us to in this life, that you are calling us in our specific uh, stations in life, in our specific workplaces, in our schools, in our relationships, to become fishers of men, to join you in the renewing of the world. God, help us to dream bigger. 
Help us to see that life is so much more than this rat race we've been trained to believe it is. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for showing us on the cross what unconditional love looks like. Thank you for pursuing us even when we don't pursue you. Thank you for seeing us even when we don't see you. Thank you for never letting go of us, though we've often let go of you. And I pray that this morning you would give us newfound vision, newfound purpose and meaning for our lives. That we would follow you with all our doubts with all our questions, with all our uncertainty. Help us to follow you. We love you. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.